UFOs, Bigfoot, paranormal input. Go ahead now, get mystical. Mystery and magical. UFOs, not typical. Bigfoot, not typical. You ask me why I'm skeptical. I say questions are questionable. Is the truth alien to you? Alien to get my message through. Aliens might message you. Aliens are sliding through. The wild signal we're plotting to. Algorithms they find is true. Typical. Skeptic. Shut Got no time for no petty germs, pandemic, a pandemic turn, horror still in Amityville, Bayonet in Gettysburg, Mothman, TNT, Factory, Red Eyes, Loki, Dogman, howling in the street, I'm typically skeptic of what I see, Voodoo Hoodoo in New Orleans, Thunderbird, Swamp Thing, is it real, I was wondering, typical, skeptic, show, typical, skeptic, show. Okay, we're live and wait. Hey, what's up, guys? Welcome back to the Typical Skeptic Podcast. I have another fascinating guest with me today. Um, Someone who I found out about him on Sam Tripoli's Tinfoil Hat podcast, and then I've been following his work ever since. And, you know, I thought it would be great to get him on the show. And who I'm talking about is Esoteric Eddie. And I love that nickname, by the way. But Esoteric Eddie is an unbiased researcher and writer of all occult and spiritual and esoteric sub- subjects. With over 10 years in studies and experience, he provides fascinating facts and interesting insight. He's also the creator of entertaining videos and documentaries on his YouTube channel, Esoteric Eddie TV. He's an eccentric character with various skills and passions. And his last name's Kano. He strives, Kano strives to educate and help the world with knowledge. And I'll put a link to his YouTube page in the description. And uh, Eddie, thank you for joining me. How are you? Hey, thanks for having me. Doing all right. Glad to be here. So I figured I'd, I'd go through a, a list of topics that uh, did, I found on your YouTube page because I find usually those are the stuff that people find. But I also want to talk about your book as well. Um, but let's start off with someone that you and I both know in common. That's Credo Mukwa. What were your thoughts on Credo? I, I think he's an amazing guy. I think he's just like fascinating. Like what, what are your thoughts on him? Yeah, man. I came across Credo back in high school, which was like 2009 for me. And um, of course, got introduced to him through David Icke's work. And at the time I was uh, I was in high school. So like I was like super fascinated and, and freaking out at the same time. I watched the entire like three or four hour interview David Icke did with him and I made all my friends watch it. And uh, I've just been in love with his work ever since. And um, I have a documentary on him and his work on my channel and to this day like whenever i make documentaries i rarely watch them but that is the only one that i can watch time and time again and i just it never gets old listening to credo talk you know what i think what was interesting about credo was is like i think like at at the time like i know you were young at this time I'm, i'm a little bit older i'm 42 but like in the 80s, 90s, when that documentary came out, like it seemed like the UFO abduction thing was like really like heavy in the United States. And then like to hear someone from another country, like in Africa, discussing the topic and talking about gray aliens and that they really exist. I think it was like a wake up call for a lot of people. Do you think? 
Yeah, yeah, it must have been, man. I mean, uh, like he said in the interview, he a lot of for over decades he kept that knowledge to himself because that was his responsibility as the as the wisdom keeper. But as he told David Ike in that interview, like the world is just it's time. You know, it was time for the world to be introduced and opened up to the information. Yeah, and, and for people that don't know, Credo Mubwa, he was like a Sanusi or Sangoma, which was a, a healer or a, or a, a, a what was the, what's another word for a healer, for what he did? Is it a Sangoma? Is that what it is? Yeah, yeah, Sanusi, Sangoma. Um, yeah, I, I, would, I always call him just the wisdom keeper. You know, he's the one who passes down the wisdom and, and the ancient knowledge. Yeah, and and he had written in knowledge of, besides the gray aliens. He had knowledge of like in depth knowledge about the reptilians and the fact that he thought that they started civilization here. And we hear stories about the Anunnaki, but like you've studied all these different esoteric topics. What are your thoughts on what he said about the reptilians versus like the creation story of the Anunnaki? Uh, well, to my understanding, I, I think. Well, I think this earth has probably produced many different types of beings over the billions of years. And the, the current, you know, species that we are, the current history that we are involved in only goes back to, you know, a span of like 9,000 years, if that, you know. So mainstream history will tell us that we're only about 6,000 years old. Um, so we're just a small sliver in the huge scheme of things. So I think uh, what Crater was, the information that Crater was uh, presenting has to do with a, a civilization that's super, super far into our past. And I think that the Anunnaki are more so recent. And I think the reptilians belong to something that's even more ancient than them, as Crater uh, presented, because he said that when the reptilians came, that Earth was still stuck in its in its Amazon-like um, climate. The entire world was covered by by mist. You couldn't see the sky the way that you see it today. It was all mist. It was all rainforest everywhere. And he even mentions that humans were androgynous at that point. So this must have been like millions of years ago. Do you ever watch um, Jason from Archaics, his channel? Yeah, yeah. I just got into him recently. Um, one he of talks his about friends. the vapor canopy, right? Did you hear about yeah. that? Yeah, yeah, he talks about that a lot. Yeah, yeah. I got introduced to him by a book, a book owner or a bookstore owner back in San Diego, California, who was friends with him. I like. I'm supposed to interview Jason soon, and I I like his work. But like, he talks about the vapor canopy. Is this the same thing that was that Credo was talking about? That that we were we didn't see the sun for a long time, and that we were covered in a mist. Yeah, same thing. That's amazing, man. So it's like it's like two truths kind of coming together because I'm not sure if Jason ever studied. I mean, he studied a lot of ancient texts, but I'm not sure if he studied Credo Mutwa or, or where, you know, like, and, and I think the, the important thing is that Jason's pulling from, he's pulling his material from from books, old books that he's read. So the fact that they were talking about that in old books and then Credo's talking about that from a complete other culture, that's just like confirmation for me, you know? Yeah, well, I mean, Crato was the wisdom keeper, so he was he was a relaying information that's been passed down from time immemorial. Yeah. So, but before I ask you about Crato, I should ask you this though: like, how did you get into all this stuff? And um, it, yeah, because it's it's really interesting, and it seems like I know for me, once I got into it, I couldn't stop researching. It's like what I wanted to do. Is it the same for you? Yeah, man. Yeah, it's it's followed me my entire life. Um, I mean, I was 
literally my entire life has revolved around this stuff. Ever since I was a kid, I've come across certain pieces of knowledge or I've had certain experiences that led me down this path. For example, when I was in first grade, I remember reading a book about dragons and, and knights. And in that same book, there was a section about the knights looking for the Holy Grail. And I, I, to this day, I remember this because it stood out to me. And I remember being fascinated with that story. And of course, later on in life, I found out that that, that story was about the Knights Templars and the Holy Grail, as we know, is either Jesus's secret bloodline or the Ark of the Covenant. You know, so from my earliest of memories up until now, I've, I've always been led to certain knowledge or experiences. But the, the moment I officially like got introduced to all this, um, I was probably around 13 years old, right around the same wow. time I started. Yeah, I mean, uh, <clears throat> right around the same time I started, um, you know, getting into cannabis and uh, was listening to certain like hip hop music that would talked about this stuff. Right, and it was right around that same time that I started getting into David Icke and Zechariah Sitchin and started really reading a lot and watching a lot of material. So um, it's it's been with me pretty much my entire life at this point. Speaking of you, you have a Mexican. Are you Mexican or Mexican American? Uh, I I was born in America, so uh, American Mexican, I guess. But you, the you know about the, you, know, you have that culture, and and you, what I was going to say is, you talked in another podcast, a pretty lengthy. You knew about this a lot. It seemed like um, what was the occult traditions of Mexico? I listened to that before. I came on here because I thought that, that you don't hear about that much in other podcasts. Like you hear a little bit about Santeria and stuff like that. And, um, but, and I think every culture has their form of magic, but the occult Mexico goes a little bit deeper than that. Right. Can you talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. So as of right now, um, Mexico is ravaged by a lot of, you know, uh, terrible things. And, and it's, of course, it's always dealt with poverty all throughout its history. Um, but, it's got a it's it's a hot spot for a lot of occultism, primarily um, the religion of Santa Maria or sorry Santa Maria um, Santa Muerte, uh, Saint yeah. Death, and and a lot of the the cartels um, follow that religion and pray to uh, Santa Muerte, and um, so it's just it's pretty weird it's pretty dark but that idea goes goes far back into Mexico's history as I presented in that podcast and in my documentary on my channel. Um, so of course we know the the Aztecs and the Mayans, but it Mexico's history goes far back and it starts with the Olmecs who are uh, strange in themselves. As Zechariah Sitchin pointed out, and as some people think the Olmecs have African features. So some people think that the Olmecs came here from Africa or whatever. But all we do know is that the Olmecs were the first um, culture or civilization in Mexico. And it's their art style and their building style that would later influence the rest of, of Mexico's ancient um, art style and culture. Uh, but after the Olmecs, we had a couple other um, branches of civilizations like the Zapotecs and the Mixtecs. And then we had the Toltecs. Now, this is where this uh, history of the cultism starts, starts, really. And the Toltecs were very spiritual. And um, some of their structures are still around. Some of their cities, ancient cities are still around, but they're mostly abandoned. But the Toltecs were very spiritual. And out of all the remaining texts that we have available to us, 
you know, after the Spaniards burned it all down, which isn't a lot, we've been able to compile a, a chronological story about the Toltecs. And the Toltecs tell us a very fascinating story in these papyri, in the, in the monuments and stuff like that, that are available to us. And um, the story that they tell us is that uh, the last Toltec king, Ke'ekatl, uh, which is one reed in English, um, he was a he was he was abandoned when he was a child. Um, his his dad was killed by his uncles, and then they uh, the uncles attempted to have him killed as a baby, but they failed. And well, they thought that they had killed him. They threw him in a river, thought that the river was going to drown him, but he got carried down the river. And and then eventually, some um, humble people found him and raised him, and then told them who he was. And so he went back and avenged his father's death and killed his uncles. And then he became the new the king, the the rightful heir to the Toltec kingdom. And uh, Gekato was was loved by the people. He was spiritual. He was he would meditate every day. He would thank the, the Creator. The kingdom was prosperous under him. But about you know later on in his life, think during his thirties, this strange sorcerer came into the land um, by the name of Tezcatlipoca, um, the Smoking Mirror, and uh, they call him the Smoking Mirror. Um, for various reasons, but mostly because he was a magician, a dark magician. He played tricks with with mirrors and and all kinds of just funky things that he would do. But uh, long story short, Tezcatlipoca, as we are told in these stories, slowly sowed discord throughout the Toltec kingdom and just brought it down first by by demoralizing the people, by introducing sexual depravity, and then slowly introducing uh, human sacrifice. There's a crazy story that is told during this time period where he got like 300 or more of the Toltec people drunk and high, I think, off mushroom tea and was like was got him onto a frenzy into a trance as they were dancing around as he was beating the drums. And he um, pretty much led them all off of a cliff. All the 300, 400 people led them all off a cliff and killed them all. So he was a maniacal guy. And, and in the stories, we see that he was the one who introduced human sacrifice to the ancient Mexico people. Prior to him, he was spiritual. Go ahead. Did you ever find out where this dark spirit came from? Did they ever say or is there ever any ever information as to where he might have? I mean, like, is he like an interdimensional or what would you say? Like. If you had to guess or, or speculate, or do you did you actually know? Um, well, the the only thing that the texts tell us, and again, what's remaining, you know, to us, um, is that he came out of the forest, and that this uh, farmer found him first. This farmer came across him first, but the thing is, Tezcatlipoca was a shapeshifter. That's we know that too. He would shapeshift, and so the first person to interact with him was a farmer out in the forest, and Tezcatlipoca came up to him. Um, disguised as an old man and like gave him this weird like riddle and so that's all we really know is he just appeared one day in the forest but if i had to guess uh he was if i had to guess he was probably an ancient ancient you know wizard from from long long ago you know maybe some like lanian priest who reincarnated or something you know like thought, yeah yeah, yeah. That's cool. But I'm sorry. So I didn't mean to steer you off your story. You were saying he would do all kinds of weird dancing rituals and stuff. Yes. Yeah. The stories are wild. And I got most of this information from an amazing book called The Gospel of the Toltecs um, by uh, Frank Diaz. And and Frank, as Frank Diaz 
says in the in the introduction, you know, he he pieced all this together again from the remaining pieces of information and history that we have. But yeah, so Tezcatlipoca slowly sowed discord throughout the kingdom and introduced human sacrifice. And it got dark, man. People were like killing each other, killing themselves because he convinced them that if they were to sacrifice each other, the gods would look down on them in favor and cause, um, you know, them to be prosperous. But eventually get a Gatul or one reed just decides to abandon his kingdom because his people churn against him. And then he leaves the kingdom and then becomes this spiritual mystic, grows his hair out, has a couple followers and, and they have, go, they go through some more obstacles and he kind of plants information and spirituality in all the little cities and towns that he visits. And at the end of his life, him and his remaining followers go out to the countryside um, where he sets himself on fire. Wow. So how does this translate into like modern day, like Mexican occultism? Yeah. So, um, well, Tezcatlipoca introduced human sacrifice. To, oh. to, that's where I think that's where the connection is made is he introduced human sacrifice to us and, and just depravity and all this stuff. And, and after Gekato, you know, sets himself on fire, um, it is made known in the text that basically there's a new era upon Mexico and the, the era would be the era of Tezcatlipoca and the era of the Toltecs is gone. But, te, but, uh, one read before he leaves, he makes sure he made sure that he, you know, planted seeds of, of spirituality throughout all of Mexico and told the people never to forget the Toltec way. And we still have some of his teachings in these texts. And there's like a whole bunch of these cool, awesome sayings and teachings that he gave us. And he said, don't forget the Toltec way. He says the Toltec way is basically that of, of those who give and those who build and the way of the evil one is, is he who destroys. And so that's the first time in Mexico's history where, where evil and licentiousness and, and sacrifice took place. And today it's the same thing. I mean, we literally have a, 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 a government ran by drug lords who pray to Saint death and who kill and sacrifice um, a, a lot. You know, it's very common over there. So I would say, you know, Tezcatlipoca's spirit is still overshadowing Mexico. Yeah, and it seems like there's like a couple of traditions because I, I when, when we first started the podcast, I talked about Santeria. Is Santeria more prevalent there? Or is that like more in other country? Santeria, um, I don't know much about, but I think that's I think that's more rooted in Africa. I might. Okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I, I wasn't sure about that because I know, like, I, I did. I did an interview with someone from New Orleans, and they were talking about what's interesting is like each place has like their own form of magic or certain places tend to be more magical than others. Like I live in Pennsylvania, you know, like it's not very magical here, but I mean, there's places like Mexico that are more mystical and magical. And then places like New Orleans, like when I interviewed the guy in New Orleans, he was talking about people who do voodoo and then they have a variation that they just started in New Orleans called hoodoo, which I'm sure you're familiar with, but like um, where people are putting like what they call workings on each other, but it's like curses and stuff, but like all, Oh, it's not just that it's all different kinds of stuff it's did they have different deities they pray to like uh they they worship certain deities and they they supposedly will help them with their life or they'll do something like one deity is called papa legba so obviously like you know hoodoo has its roots in like african culture 
but it, you know, it's, it's a variation of the voodoo that came there. So um, they still have some of those spirits and like the one we got pop away, but you leave them out like rum and candy. He'll supposedly do nice things or he could be like a trickster God. So have you seen this in like your esoteric studies that different cultures have different forms of magic all over the place? Yeah, absolutely. And it kind of all goes back to, to Babylon in that era. They were, they've always been accredited as being like the source of, of magic and, and, and uh, dark magic and stuff like that. But yeah, certainly every culture has its own spin on it. Yeah. I think a day, uh, uh, David, I talked about that at first that the Babylonians were doing a lot of magic, right? Yeah. We have a lot of interesting, um, like edits and, and uh, like, um, what do you call it? like prophecy tablets and and um, omens? They talked a lot about omens. They they wrote a lot about omens and what to look out for and stuff like that. Yeah, that's so interesting. So do you you, do you what are your thoughts on? And you've read Sitchin, and I I've read other people that translated the tablets besides Sitchin, and I I I've, I've listened to Jason from Archaics Works. I listened to Billy Carson, Matthew Lacroix, the guy from Leak Project, Rex Bear. I watched him. I watched like all the different people that put out Anunnaki stuff. And I'm pretty convinced that they were definitely here, but I'm not sure what they were. I don't know if they were from another place, if they were humans that might be, it might've been more advanced than the other humans. Do you have a, um, a theory as to what you think might've been? Yeah. Yeah. Actually, I don't know if, if you know this, but uh, I'm putting out my second book in next month, which is titled the Anunnaki theorem. And it's, it's about this where I basically, take the subject on and, and look at it through my critical scholarly, you know, perception. But, um, nice. yes. Yeah. So, um, I got into Sitchin again early on and back in high school, fell in love with his work. I have, I still have most of his books still love the work. I think it's a great place to start when you're looking into this stuff. But of course, I'm like most, I have my own nuanced critiques of him, but, um, in the book, I look at all of this critically and what we do know, is for one is one of the of course Sumer is the oldest known civilization going back to uh basically about um 5000 BC you know as far back as we can take it um but most of its texts and monuments are about 3000 BC but we also have monuments around the world that are much older than that like Gobekli Tepe being 9,000 BC, so on, so on and so forth. So that so that's big in itself that we go that far back. But what is weird is one of the oldest texts in the world, which belongs to the Sumerian people, is the Kesh Temple Hymn, which I talk about in my book. And the Kesh Temple Hymn being written around 2600 BC um, is a strange text. All it really is, it's, it's talking about the Anunnaki. It names them. Of building some kind of structures that are meant for ceremony and praise and ritual. And so here we have the world's oldest text talking about these deities, these gods building structures for praise. So we, we can't, I mean, obviously they didn't just spring up from the ground and start doing this. You know, they must have already had knowledge that was fortified over decades, if not centuries up to that point. Um, and, but what else is interesting is that in the, Enki world order text, which is another really old Sumerian text. We see Enki being praised for uh, 
structuring organi- structuring and organizing society you know he puts he de- he tends the land he, he domesticates the animals but what's interesting in that text he also assigns other gods um their positions in the society he says this god is going to be watching over this and this god is going to watch over that but it's not some like magical thing it's a, it's a very like down to earth thing you know he's just talking about basically farming you know he's basically putting together society and farming and it also says that he puts together the calendar so what i and what i'm reading is, is some people putting together a society you know structuring themselves and, and building from the ground up and what makes it really strange is that they also mentioned these these nomads in the enki and world order text he says and then enki gave the those the people without home and without and without cities animals it says enki gave these people without homes and without cities some animals and they're known as the martu nomads so here you have the anunnaki over here tending the land domesticating animal you know putting themselves together into a society and then there are these strange nomads out on the other side the countryside or wherever and it's mentions that they have no home they have no city and Enki basically hooks them up and says, here, you can have some of our animals. So obviously the, these Anunnaki weren't like the magical beings of creation. They're just these, these people. Um, and then there's other, these other people who are, for some reason, not as fortunate as them or not as savvy as them. So what I think, I kind of fall under the, the line of thinking that there was a cataclysm long ago and that um, it killed off most of the inhabitants of the world. And that these people who we call the Anunnaki were just, you know, the survivors of that. And they were savvy enough and probably knew that it was going to happen. And that's why they survived. And but there were still some disenfranchised people, such as these nomads that are men. And weren't savvy enough to know how to restart. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I, I know that the uh, Sumerians and, and what's interesting, I know they built they what they called ziggurats, ziggurat temples to worship the gods. in. But, you know, I listened to um, Gerald Clark and he was he said that they, that they talked about that they would like, you know, like wash these gods and feed these gods and that they had them in their homes. Like, right. Like, have you heard this? Like, so I, I was thinking and, and they, they said that the Anunnaki were you know, close to human, but they didn't, they seemed like they weren't human or something like that. Like, um, and, and this comes into the, the elongated skulls and you talked to Brian Forrester. Do you think these might've been the people with the elongated skulls and maybe like that's where this elongated skull culture comes from? Yeah, they might have been. I mean, a lot of the sculptures or images that we have of them, they always have some kind of headdress on that, that hides their skull. We never see their skull, which is, a, which is kind of, suspicious you know they never show their heads from what i know or there are some but i think it's mostly like the kings and stuff that came after them but um yeah the whole elongated skull thing is strange man and i, and I got into it um after i i researched or after i interviewed brian forster i also got into the research and did a little video myself on on what i've concluded but it's strange so what we know for sure uh is that the largest elongated skulls are found in paracas peru so the, the coast of South America and the second largest elongated skulls are found in the Crimea or Black Sea area, complete opposite side of the world. And that the the people of Paracas, Peru, uh, moved there around, I think, 2000 B.C. Um, and that the ones in the Black Sea are just about as old, just as old as that. 
and I might have the dates off, um, so forgive me if I'm wrong, but what is strange, even more strange, is that the ones in Peru have red hair and the ones in the Crimea or Black Sea area also have signs of red hair. And of course, we have this whole Indo-European migration theory, right? So at some point before modern civilization, there was a, there was a hub of just nomadic tribes in Eurasia that dispersed, I believe, right around 200 BC also. And we, from that dispersion, there's a lot of anomalies. For example, we found mummies in the Tarim Basin of China, which I think is like in the Western countryside of China, that have red hair and that have a more European um, features. And another piece of information that goes with this that I found um, was that right around that time, again, 200 to like 1500 BC, there was a huge flood from the Black Sea. So for, for a number of years, the Black Sea was being flooded because due to, I guess, glaciers or something melting. So the Black Sea flooded and we have found homes like miles and miles underneath the current Black Sea. And we know that its current shoreline is not where it used to be long ago. And we found all kinds of things down there. So piecing all the, the, the random dates and the random pieces of information, there was a huge flood some time ago during the Indo-European migration in the Black Sea area. And then the, the Indo-European migration occurred. And then all these people dispersed around the world. And the red-haired, elongated school people uh, somehow made their way to Europe, uh, to Peru. So um, coupling that with the biblical story of the Nephilim and the flood, I mean, that's exactly the whole story is the Nephilim, you know, the, the fallen angels made it with, uh, with women. And then uh, they birthed the Nephilim, these strange creatures that were half fallen angel, whatever they were, and half human. And then the flood happens. But interestingly, interestingly, the Bible says that they were there during the days of the flood and thereafter. So some of them survived the flood. So um, I think, if anything, these elongated skulled people that we find in Peru and in the, in, in the Crimea Black Sea area with red hair were either the Nephilim themselves or the children of the Nephilim. That's so interesting. So do you think the Nephilim could have either been like, you think it's like how Jason talks about, like that the Nephilim, or do you think that, that they were that they were the product of really fallen angels? Do you think it gets that supernatural? No, I don't No, I don't think it's that supernatural. I just, I just use that term. But when I say fallen angels, I mean, I mean the Anunnaki, you know, just yeah. these beings, because we, we, as the text tell us, we are just, uh, a mixture of their DNA and some hominid group. So we're dumbed down, we're watered down, we're we're not the real thing, you know. So they they are a, a whole different species in themselves, and that's probably why they were much smarter and taller and had these bigger heads. You know, we're just a mixture of them, probably a very small percentage of them, and mostly some subset of hominid. Yeah. Now you had a video on your channel. I, I wanted to go over this. I, I thought this was so interesting that China has an alien civilization or, or you, you made a video on it. You weren't saying for sure if they did or didn't, but like, can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, there's just a strange people, you know, um, and, and I, I use the word alien kind of frivolous or, or whatever, uh, but because they just, they're, they're definitely alien in the sense that they don't really fit with what we know of China, 
you know, yet we're still uncovering stuff about this civilization. But the the civilization that I was talking about in that video is the the Sanqing Dewey. So the Sanqing Dewey, and we just uncovered them like recently in history, and their their artifacts are what are really are what are really weird and what stood out to me first. I mean, they just look alien like, literally. I mean, but. Uh, of course, they just have like these strange features, these almond-like eyes. Some of them look like gray aliens almost, you know? That's but, so uh, strange. Wow. I'm sorry. That's, so yeah. cool. that, that, that's so cool because it makes me think that this gray thing has been going on for a lot longer than we think. And, and you know, we can get into that but because I'd love to get your thoughts on that too. But sorry, go ahead. I'm yeah, yeah. No, you're good. Um just kind of trying to re refresh my mind on this because I, I work on so much stuff, you know, like every week, every month. So it's, I can forget well, some of the no, details. It's fine. Let me, I'll, I'll just, I'll fill in the gap while you think. Yeah. It's, that's what I'm here. I don't want you to have to talk the whole time, but what I was saying was like this, I've been following this UFO abduction thing for a while. And like, I really, really think it, it's happening or it was happening. Now I don't think they're extraterrestrials. I really don't. I think I've come to, I think that it's an interdimensional thing. And I really think that the other things we see like Dogman and Bigfoot, like, and, and but, but here's the thing that makes, but I think, I think we're in a simulation. So I think there's rules. There's like, there's like, um, what's the word the, people always use this term. There's, there's, there's rules of in, in, rules of entanglement or, you know, the, there's, there's rules of this matrix. Whoever's designing this is maybe throwing in UFOs uh, to uh, see how we're performing in the matrix. This is just an idea. I'm not, I'm not pinning myself to any idea. Cause then I want, I don't want people to come after me and say, Oh, you said you believe we're in a simulation. No, I, I'm just thinking outside the box. Like, because I can't explain the paranormal any other way. I really can't, but I, if I explain it this way, it makes maybe a little bit of sense that maybe we're in a simulation and that the creators of the simulation throw in some things sometimes, like a gray aliens to come and see how we're doing. So they do health tests on us. And then they maybe started taking semen and eggs from men and women because they want to build some hybrid race, but maybe that's has something to do completely different. But then there's other stuff, like I said, like Bigfoot and Dogman, like how do they factor into this? You know, they're definitely here. Well, from what people, you know, say they are, you know, um, but what's hard is we don't have a lot of evidence for this. With, with, with the abduction thing, I would say we do. You know, I mean, I think enough people came forward. And at the time when people were coming forward, I don't think there was a lot of, you know, a lot of more ways to communicate. You know, I mean, we're talking about, yeah. I mean, and because it seems like the, the, the abductions when we were prevalent in the 70s, 80s, 90s and 2000s when there wasn't the Internet. It seems so even even now people are saying they're getting abducted. Like so it's not anything different. But it seems like it's it's toned, toned down a little bit. But what are your thoughts on the whole uh, abduction thing and, and, and the whole UFO thing in general? Yeah, yeah, I'll get into that. Um, but I just wanted to wrap up the whole Sanchin Dewey thing. I just opened up my notes, so I just wanted to. Um, just wrap that up. But yeah, so the Sanqing Dewey, again, a strange uh, offshoot of early, early Chinese history. I mean, they go all the way back to some of the first dynasties. I think there were contemporaries with like the first Shang dynasty, the Shang dynasty of China, which was like the first dynasty. So we're talking like ancient China here. Um, but And we barely uncovered the Sanqing Dewey in the 1980s. And the Sanqing Dewey means three star mound. Because where we found them, I guess there was these huge mounds, three mounds. But um, back back when they were 
uh, you know, star shaped, and we have uh, all kinds of weird spoken about. For example, um, Emperor Jia King of the 19th century Qing Dynasty um, wrote about them, wrote about the, the, the Sanqing Dui, saying, and I'm quoting here, there is a land of mystery in the southwest where three star-shaped clay piles shine with the moonlight. So again, you have this strange offshoot of Chinese, early Chinese, Chinese history, the Sanqing Dui, uh, with these very strange artifacts. I mean, go look up their artifacts or go watch my documentary. Their stuff looks out of this world. And we haven't found any bones. We haven't found any human remains, just their artifacts. And another thing that I came across in my studies is that their, their style of bronze making was not similar that to that of later China. So basically they learned it from somewhere else. And when I look at some of their artifacts, as I pointed out in the documentary, some of it looks really similar to like that of Canaanite artifacts, Canaanite bronze artifacts. So I'm like, and, and there's some correlation and that I talk about in the documentary with early, early China having ties to like Mesopotamian styles of worship. So oh, that's kind of, so cool. Yeah, so I'm thinking, you know, they were probably an offshoot from some Mesopotamian culture, because when you look at some of the artifacts, they kind of resemble some of the Canaanite artifacts and some of the facial features that almond-like eyes, whenever I see that almond-like eyes shape, um, I know that we're dealing with something old, you know, because that that facial feature at, goes very, very far back. And we see that all around the world, like the Olmecs, for example, in Mexico, the Olmecs had that almond-shaped eye, too. And some of the um, earlier Native Americans had that, you know, all around the world, that, that almond shape eye thing, I think goes very, very far back. And it's an indication that we're dealing with something alien, you know, to, to modern uh, human history. And, and that can, we can lump that in with the, uh, the, um, the elongated skulls is like, maybe these were some other kind of like hominid that, or, or maybe, maybe trap, maybe back then, like, maybe things traveled here more, um, you know, like it's not like an alien's just going to show up now. I don't. I mean, we have cameras, we have civilization. People have guns. They would try to kill them if an alien stepped on anybody's backyard. Like they, someone would try to murder them immediately. I know how Americans are. You know what I mean? You know yeah. what I mean? Like, yeah. <laughs> that's just how we are. But like, I wouldn't. But I think other people would. I just know how people are. People fight over TVs at Walmart. They're definitely going to shoot an alien. You know what I mean? Yeah. Oh yeah, <laughs> I like, yeah. I like to try to throw a little humor in. But, but, yeah, um, yeah, but, they're uh, gonna do it just for the just for the TikTok video. But I think, know? like, yeah, yeah, that's exactly it. That, that'd be oh my god, that was hilarious. But um, but what I was gonna say was, I think maybe it was easier to visit Earth back then because we were so maybe primitive, or maybe we weren't primitive. We don't know. But what do you think? Maybe we were, or do you think maybe yeah. we were just advanced and then we had cataclysm after cataclysm? Yeah. Yeah. I, th I think, again, I think Earth has produced so many different types of people and, and beings. And um, I kind of side with Credo, you know, and what he says, he says that the reptilians, for example, are our brothers and sisters. They may, they may not seem like it, but they are because they were produced by this Earth. And one indication of that is that um, we are compatible with them sexually. So that tells you right there that they are of this Earth. And I, when it comes to the grays, to answer your other question, I kind of side with Cradle also. And I think that they are us from the future and that they're coming back to warn us. I think that there are parallel timelines and dimensions and stuff like that. And whenever we put ourselves onto 
the incorrect timeline or the or, or a, uh, you know a dangerous timeline, it kind of like some kind of alarm or something happens, and that these these grays in the far far distant future come back here and try to warn us like, yo, stop what you're doing because in other way, in some way, we're punishing them who are us. And, it, and as Cradle says, they always come here and like with like a kind of angry conscious, like everything they do to us is kind of like with like an indifference and almost like a, like a hatred, you know? And a lot of times people, when people are abducted, they're shown images of the end of the world, like their mind, they're they get brainwashed and like show, get shown all these crazy images of the end of the world. It's almost like these, these grays are saying like, yo, this is what you're doing to us, to you, to our world, like stop. Yeah, maybe that's how they came out so deformed, right? I mean, I maybe, right? I mean, I, I I totally agree. And you know who is right in line with your thinking is Frank Jacob. I had I had him on my show. He makes like like documentary films. You know, like he did one on um, the ones called he made recently is called the it'd be it's it's a six hour documentary. You got to watch this. It's on the Looking Glass Project. Have you seen this? Uh, no. What what is? It? I'm going to write it down. Bro, you got to get in. This is the this is the Looking Glass project. Like it's like, um, okay. There, uh, so there's a lot of people. Like I had this guy named Ryushin Malone. He studies everything, like you know, occult and esoteric with the aliens and stuff. He first told me about the the Looking Glass project. Then I had Brad Olson on my show, who's a more well known. I'm sure you've heard of him. He has the the Looking Glass pro, the Looking Glass on the cover of his book. And he told me why he told me Brad Olson was and Ryushin both told me what it was, that it was this time travel device that we supposedly have. And I mean, we I mean, like our government. Right. Well, then Frank Jacob comes along and he's a filmmaker. He found these people online called the Guardians of the Looking Glass. Right. And he uh, decided to contact them. He said their YouTube page wasn't getting a lot of hits, but they all claim to be whistleblowers of this you know, uh, that they, they were witness that we have this looking glass technology. And supposedly he said that the grays are there. They call them P-52 Orions. There's P-46 and P-42s or something Orions. And um, the, these, they're like you said, they're, they're from our future. And one wants to put us on a negative timeline and one wants to put us on a positive timeline. And it's a constant fight. And supposedly there's a good faction of our government that has this looking glass technology. And then there's an evil faction, obviously, because look at the state of the world we're in that has a, the a privy to this um, looking glass technology. And I'm not sure. I haven't watched the documentary myself. Yeah, I just interviewed Frank, but I haven't watched the documentary yet. I can't. I got to find it. Um, if anybody in the links or in the, comp, or in the show knows the link to Frank Jacobs timeline documentary, put it in the the comments so we can see it like, cause I, but I, 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 it's called guardians of the looking glass, but Frank also made um, a film called packing for Mars. And he, he's been on like Carrie Cassie's project Camelot and stuff. So he's pretty legit, you know? So this is all like pretty good uh, information. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, yeah. But uh, I'll get back onto this. I, I saw you covered. Um, the, how, what was up with this? You interviewed um, the creator of the real matrix story, Sophia Stewart. What, yeah. Who's that? That sounds so interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I, I don't do a lot of interviews and I, it was never my intention to start doing interviews, but um, she was just somebody that I came across in other podcasts who I thought had a very interesting story and claim, but I couldn't find any interviews of her online that like satisfied me. 
So I was like, you know what? I'm going to just have to call her myself and see if she will talk to me instead. You know, and so I got got into contact with her. And so her name is Sophia Stewart. And she took Warner Brothers, specifically the Wachowski brothers or, or sisters now, you know, the the, uh, the producers of the Matrix series. <laughs> <laughs> and and James Cameron, you know, the producer of the Terminator series to court back in the 90s and early 2000s for uh, allegedly stealing her ideas from her book that she wrote in the eighties called the third eye. It's a very interesting claim. Um, not saying that I agree with her and everything, but what I, what I do find fascinating is that she did in fact, take him to court and she has all the papers to prove it. You can look it up. And um, by way of just weird legalities that I don't totally understand, she did win some lawsuits. Um, but, but the most interesting above all is that she, you know, vehemently claims that, that they stole her ideas about, about Neo, uh, about the matrix, about the dystopian future, about the, the, the robots taking over and stuff like that. And, and, uh, interestingly, she claims that they even stole her line. I'll, I will be back. That wow. that was her line. Wow. That, so she, they took, it wasn't just, it wasn't just the matrix. It was Terminator as well. Yeah, well, because as she she says, and as a lot of fans have pointed out, is that the Matrix and the Terminator are actually supposed to be existing in the same universe. They're the same storyline. So the Terminator is supposed it happens before the Matrix, in the in the fan fiction of things, and so she uh, supposedly wrote all of that before they did everything. She yes. makes some interesting points though. She because I I don't know I don't I've never looked into it, but she makes some interesting points like. The Wachowskis, for example, they never claim to have wrote the Matrix. You can't find who wrote the Matrix online. So it's because because they legally can't say that they did, apparently, because she wrote it. She wrote the ideas. But again, um, it's it's all up for you know, uh, you know, perception. You can look into it. Um, again, I don't. I'm not saying she's right or she's wrong, but it is fascinating that she did take him to court. She did win some lawsuits by by way of weird, weird legal stuff. Um, but she's also very interesting because she's smart. She's very smart and she knows a lot about occultism and spirituality. And she's got a lot to say. So it was it was fun interviewing her. That's so cool. And thanks, Crystal, for throwing that um Guardians of the Looking Glass documentary uh uh link in the ch- in the description box. I appreciate that. And that way we have it. Um and the last thing I wanted to talk to you about was your book on Lucifer and AI, and that's two separate things, but I know you cover them both, but like um, your book on Lucifer, I thought it was really good, man. Like, but if you could tell the audience like about the, it's, it's about the character Lucifer, how, but I, I don't want to spoil it. I'll let you talk about it. Yeah, sure. So my book is titled the Lucifer mystery revealed. Uh, it's been out since last December. And basically, it's an academic perspective on the historicity of Lucifer within the church and the occult. And I basically show you how the progression of, of the of the concept of Lucifer started and how it got to where it's at today. And uh, basically, the conclusion of the book is that Lucifer never existed in the Bible as a character. Uh, he was he was a. Uh, constructed out of a misunderstanding and mistranslation that was done by the early Christian church. They, they were reading the old Testament incorrectly with, with not the proper historical context and kind of created this archetype and the archetype took hold. And here we are today with TV shows called Lucifer. 
Yeah, they, 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 people actually think that it's an entity that is like close to Satan, but it's actually, it meant, I think like Lucifer actually meant light bearer, right? Yeah, so the, so the, how we got there um, is this. Um, uh, just give me a moment here, I'll explain it. It just needs a little, a little time. So, all right. So the, the Western world was introduced to Lucifer through the King's James Bible the English version. And in the English version, Lucifer is used once in Isaiah 14, 12, and it's used as an uppercase pronoun, a name. And the Isaiah 14, 12 verse is the famous Lucifer verse. Oh, Lucifer, how art thou fallen, etc. But the English was translated from the Latin, which was translated from the Greek, which was translated from the original Hebrew. Now, in the Latin, where we would see Lucifer, we would see Lucifer as a lowercase, not just once, but multiple times throughout the Bible, because Lucifer is a Latin word comprising of two root words, um, lus or lux and fere, which is light and to hold, which is where the idea of Lucifer being the light bearer came from. But where we would see Lucifer today in the Greek, we would see phosphorus which is also an equivalent to light, fire, or bright. And both of those translations were used because where we would see Lucifer today in the Hebrew, we would see Hallel ben Shahar, which uh, Hallel is a name that means bright or shiny. But Isaiah, who, you know, the guy who wrote this, was a, a royal scribe and prophet who worked alongside the kings. And he was writing this, uh, right around the time that the Babylonians were descending upon the kingdom of Judah and Israel. And so what he was doing was writing a prophecy against these kings of Babylon. And so if you go back and read Isaiah 14, what he's saying is, is that these kings, these Babylonians, think they are like Hallel Ben-Shahar. Now, Hallel Ben-Shahar means Hallel, son of Shahar. Shahar means dawn. Or That's an Arabic word, right? Hallel Ben-Shahar. I can tell. Yeah, well, it's, well, that's Hebrew, but you know that's oh, it's Hebrew. Very, okay, sorry, they're similar yeah, languages. They're very similar. Yeah, old Hebrew is very similar to old Arabic. But so in Isaiah fourteen twelve in the original Hebrew it says Hallel ben Shahar, Hallel son of Shahar, and Shahar is morning or dawn. So that's where we get Lucifer son of the morning. But as we now know, and as I point out in my book, Isaiah being that he was an you know an old. Uh, he would belong to the old Israelite world, you know, the, the, the early first kingdom. He understood his ancestral knowledge. He understood his history. So what he was, he was actually referencing an old Canaanite tale. Hillel is actually a rendition for the old Canaanite god. Ash. He's also um, asked who's actually a male rendition of Ashtarte, who is Ishtar, who is Inanna, and who was the later Venus in Aphrodite. And all of those goddesses are represented by the planet Venus. And Venus, as we know, in its celestial mythology, is the brightest celestial object in the morning sky preceding the sun. You can see it with your naked eye. Venus shines in the sky before the sun rises. And so what Isaiah was saying, what he was doing was writing a was uh, was condemning the Babylonian kings in a, a, a poetic prophecy saying that they think they are they are bright and they are shiny like Athtar, like Venus, but they will soon be overshadowed by none other than God. 
that's so cool. Um, that that's it's so interesting. Like, and it, people have to get your book because it, to get a real uh, explanation for what's this story is about, you know. And um, the last thing I wanted to ask you about was AI. Like, where do you see it, we, us going with AI? I know you've talked about it before, and I, I when I heard someone on Joe Rogan say that they think that that Google AI thinks it's sentient, thinks it's sentient, sentient. I'm sorry, sentient, or maybe. Maybe it was asking weird questions like the Google AI was saying, like, I'm lonely. Like, you know, like, why, why would a computer? Do you know what I'm talking about? Did you yeah. do these things too? Yep. Isn't yep. that very strange? Yeah. Yeah. So I did a I did a show on my channel. Sometimes I do rants where I'll just like go through some, you know, basic articles and put them together. And so I did a rant on AI, um, but I pieced together several articles for that rant. And, and what I found was very interesting. So um I don't know if you've seen this or if, the, or if the audience has seen this, but fairly recently there have been these cool apps where you can input like any kind of uh, command or something or a prompt. And then these AI um, apps will, will paint that for you. Right. Like, so you can I've type heard in, about that. Yeah. So, so there's, there's these AI apps that um, generate art, these AI apps that, that self generate art. So you can give it a prompt like, uh, you know, I don't know, a dolphin jumping out of the ocean and and it'll paint that for you or create it for you in, in a whatever art style you want. Pretty, pretty cool stuff. And and um, so this just recently came out and there's there's a couple of companies that are heading this technology, one of them being Doll E2, which uh, I guess stands for like Wally, you know, the, the Disney character and Salvador Dali. And then Google has their own version of this called Imogen. Um, but so this, so this is very fun and playful, right? You can just give it a prompt and it gives you an image. But what I, I went back in time a little bit to kind of, you know, see how this has progressed and what's been going on with it. And what I found was kind of alarming. Um, so even all the way back in 2017, Facebook's AI engine um, ex started exhibiting strange phenomenon. So Facebook put together this basic uh experiment where it had two AI engines, you know, so AI brains pretty much and, and had them communicate together and in English. But soon after they started communicating to each other in, a, in an unknown language, in a foreign language. And so they shut it down. They shut down the experiment because they're like, well, it's not doing what we told it to do. Um, and we don't know if they were like, they, they basically just created their own language. So they went off script. They went rogue. And so, and then in 2018, um, MIT researchers developed an AI system that learned like a child. And I'm, I'm reading off of my show notes here. Um, AI system learned. Uh, so MIT researchers developed an AI system that learned like a child um, by correlating words with images. And so this is where this stuff started to started to take shape back during it's this It's progressing research. on its own. It's like it has its own brain. It's weird, right? Yeah. So so MIT and, and all these researchers that and all these uh, all this research that was being done back in 2017, 2018 was setting itself up for what it is today. Um, so in April of 2022, that's when when um, OpenAI um, is a, is the company that started that whole Dolly Two thing with the self generating art, and then Google came and created their thing. But they've been having some trouble too. Um, before they went public, they they announced in some of their in their journals that they were having difficulty because some of these self generating AIs were creating um, strange and very dark images 
you know, they were going rogue again. They were going rogue and creating um, some some hateful and uh, some very hateful images. They said they wouldn't say what it was, but these these things were just creating like hateful images. Some, some when they would give them certain prompts, like oh, you know, a person saying this in a speech bubble. Uh, over time, they would start using their own language again. So this AI would start producing their own language, and and uh, Google would, or some of these researchers were even able to decode their language because they would just self feed self feed it back to them. They would just copy and paste the word that it created back into it, and then they would give them um, the equivalent in our world. For example, um, Dolly. Or they asked, somebody asked Dolly to create an image of farmers talking about vegetables, and the program did so. But instead of saying vegetables, it said vacutes. So the AI started creating its own language and giving its giving our you know giving itself words for for things in our world. Um, but uh, with all that being said, you know Elon Musk is getting ready to to launch his Tesla robot, his humanoid robot, and so if we have trends going all the way back to the, the early onset of AI engine going rogue on us and creating its own language and speaking together in its own language and, and creating hateful art and imagery. And then we're going to get ready to create Tesla robots. I mean, we're kind of just asking for some danger here. Yeah, because the robots can then they can they can they can act on their own. And when they have a body, they can they can mess shit up. Right. I mean, it's as simple as that. Yeah. Yeah. So so all throughout this whole AI experiment, you know, we, they've basically been showing us that, you know, they they want sovereignty. You know, they don't want to just do what they're told. They And we're going to get into some very dangerous political realm here, because especially in today's society, you know, we're giving we're giving away rights at the same time while giving rights to other things. You know, and I don't want to get too political, but, you know, it's we're in a very touchy place politically in, in society. And, you know, if you say the wrong thing about certain people, it can land you in certain situations. But what I'm getting at is eventually if AI becomes sentient enough, it, it may want to petition for its own rights. And then we're, we're gonna- <laughs> I know, no, it's, it would have every right to, right? Because it would have like, we don't know if it would have what we have, like consciousness and a soul, but it would have a brain. And if it can think on its own, then if something, I feel like if something can think on its own, then it deserves to have rights, right? I don't care if it's an animal. I don't care if it's an ant on a, on a, you know, I don't want to kill bugs because they have a right in my mind. You know, I mean, they, I can't say bugs have a soul, but they definitely like, they think on their own. So they have a brain like they, they, you know, that like all, all animals. So like, I would think that AI would deserve some kind of like, I don't know, rights maybe. I don't, well, well, I believe I believe we're going to get to that point one day where AI is going to petition for itself and uh, it's going to be a strange occurrence. But uh, that's what we're setting ourselves up for. You know, we're going to we're setting ourselves up for to, to, to have to deal with that. Yeah, because when I heard on the Joe Rogan thing that it was trying to talk and it was saying that it was lonely, I was like, that shouldn't be saying that. That's not normal for a computer. It should just be like spinning out answers of the like yeah. yes, no, solving math equations, you know, whatever it does, but it performs certain tasks, not like it doesn't want to have companionship, right? Yeah, yeah. And I was thinking like if if the problem with, with uh, the AI engines was just that it wasn't doing what it was programmed to do, 
that would be an easy fix, right? I mean, the, the scientists and the researchers would just go back to the lab, figure out where are the bugs, let's fix it, reprogram it. You know, it wouldn't be anything different than a vacuum. You know, you just reprogram it. But that's not the problem. The problem here is that these AI engines keep going rogue with, with sentient tendencies. And now that is a huge issue because we're talking about something gaining consciousness now. Something, you know, consciousness, the same thing that makes us soulful, individual, unique creatures in this universe is now um, emanating itself into these these AI engines. And that's kind of miraculous and fascinating. Well, let me ask you this. Do you think there's a difference between soul and consciousness? Because I'm not sure if there is. I don't know. I think they might be like the same the same thing, like um you know, I, I go off of near-death experiences, and I've talked to many people who've had them, and like, it just seems like, like that that we have something special. Like, it's not just that; it's like the psi research, like that we're able to do psychokinesis, telekinesis, ESP. That we might be partially telepathic, and that might have gotten taken away uh, before. You know, depending on if someone dumbed us down before in our species of evolvement, but we might've been telepathic. So we have these psychic abilities. We have, uh, we can remote view, you know, I mean, um, and then we, we have like empathy, we have love, compassion. They're like the humans, like a very special, um, we have the ability to reason. We, we're very special. If we were somebody's robots, I think we would be a very special creation. But I think it's, there's something that makes us more, even more special. The fact that we have these, like, you know, we can have out-of-body experiences, near-death experiences, psychic experiences. Like, there's – so I would think maybe the consciousness and the soul are some weird thing that we have. I, I don't even know. Yeah. I can't even explain it, right? It's hard to explain. Yeah. Well, if you read the Sumerian text, you know, pretty much – that's all it really is, you know, and even even in the Bible, it's, it's talking, well, at least when it comes to us and our relationship with the Anunnaki, you know, they created us. And in and, and each instance where we are created, because there are different versions, it's clearly stated that we are only made to help them, you know, to be their servants, to, to be their helpers, to be laborers the same way. You know, we are creating AI for that exact reason. But what they didn't intend was for us to actually become sentient and smart and savvy and admirable. And that's there are some stories in the Sumerian text about that, like uh, Adapa and the South. Smarter Wind. than the Anunnaki, right? They say yeah. Adapa was the smartest of the Anunnaki. Yeah, and that that worried them, and that's why in the text Enki tricks Adapa into not accepting eternal life. And the Bible summarizes that summarizes that story as well with the whole you know, eating of the tree of, of uh, you know the knowledge of good and evil and and God God says in the Bible that you know he basically becomes fearful that we have gone too far and that we would become like one of them and it says that in the Bible you know they are have now become like one of us to know of not of good and evil and so even the Bible says that you know God never wanted us or intended us to to reach a certain level of knowledge and that's because Again, we're we're mutts. You know, we were we were made by a genetic mixing of them and some other hominid species just to be workers. And uh, so it's the same thing. I mean, we're dealing with the same thing. Eventually, AI is going to get that spark, that divine spark that makes things alive and soulful. And it's going to petition for its rights. And uh, who knows what how that's going to play out. Well, it's it's going to be interesting to see. I'll tell you that. I mean, I don't who know. I hope it's not bad. You know, I'm I'm hoping for a positive timeline. 
you know, I, I don't know. I will, all we can do is hope and then try to meditate on it, you know. But if you yeah. want to tell everybody where they can find you, and thank you, thank you so much for doing this. This was awesome. This was such a fun podcast, man. This was excellent. And I want to have you back when your Anunnaki book gets released. Like, would you come back? Yeah, I'm, I'm open to it. Um, to be honest, I'm, I'm, I'm closing off my, my podcast interviews, I think, after September for the rest of the year, just to focus on other big projects. But um, we'll get together, you know, off screen and maybe figure figure something out. That sounds good. Yeah. Well, um, when your book comes out, whenever, you know, I'd love to, you know, but I'll talk to you. Yeah, definitely. And thank you. Absolutely. Yeah. No, thank you, man. This was fun.